Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Our gospel reading tonight is from Luke chapter 4. We're beginning a new worship series tonight. We've closed out the Advent, Christmas, uh, beginning of Epiphany uh, season, and we're in a new series now called Deep Water, Contemplating Baptism. And the way we're going to do that is we're just going to keep reading in Luke's gospel, (laughs) as we've been doing for weeks through Advent and Christmas and into the Epiphany season. But listen, here's how it works. Last Sunday, Luke chapter 3, grown-up Jesus got himself in line at the Jordan River. He was baptized by his relative John. He saw the Holy Spirit of God descend upon him in bodily form as a dove, and he heard the voice of God declare his sonship, his belovedness, and exactly how happy he had made God by saying yes to this grand adventure of wanting what God wants and spending the rest of his life in pursuit of that. I'm going to posit that that's what baptism is, not just for Jesus, but for all of us. That baptism is saying yes to God's offer, saying yes to receiving all that God gives and giving all that God asks. And so in a sense, though Jesus was already God's son at his birth, Jesus says yes to the fullness of that identity in his baptism. He says, I'm in, I'm yours, let's do this. What's next? So over the next several Sundays, we're going to read stories about what's next for baptized Jesus, living a baptized life, doing baptized things in pursuit of clues to and support for our own baptized lives. For our reading tonight, Luke chapter 4, verse 1, picking up right where we left off last week. Jesus has just been baptized, declared God's son. Luke has interrupted the narrative flow briefly to recite Jesus' human genealogy so that he is son of God, but also inextricably son of humanity. And then assuming that Jesus has had a minute to towel off and put his sandals back on, we're going to pick up right here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the Diabolos. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. He, the Diabolos, said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then he led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, and he, the Diabolos, said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. 
Then he took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Psalm um, 91, I think. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the Diabolos had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's talk about that Diabolos for a minute, yeah? I'm using the raw, untranslated Greek here because it's shifty, this thing we're naming, and we have to keep it from getting too solidified in our minds. Diabolos is where we get the word diabolical, ab, and you could translate diabolos as the devil, as our slides showed tonight. Or we could translate diabolos less like a name or a persona and more like a concept, like enemy or adversary. In other words, somebody, something set against you, somebody, something energetically fighting to tear you down or thwart your purpose or end your life. In Matthew's version of this story, this one is introduced as Diabolos and then referred to as the tester. And in that version, at the third temptation, a famished, exhausted, furious Jesus will hiss out, Go away from me, Satan, Satan, like it's a name, like this is a particular enemy, particularly dangerous, who has in mind his particular destruction. The main thing I'm trying to say here is that our imaginations have been funded with images of Diabolos that are horrifying or comical or so horrifying they've become comical of glowing red eyes and leathery skin stretched over cartilage, horns and pointy ears and those really gross long fingernails that are more like claws, fangs and forked tongue and of course a cloud of dry ice smoke swirling all around that probably smells like farts, a, a raspy voice with a vaguely British accent, just you know, whatever trope of evil can be mustered to scare us. Except it's not even really, well, it's scary anymore. What's actually terrifying to me is the possibility that Jesus, having been baptized, now possessed by his own enthusiasm for God's project, assured of God's love, revved up and ready for whatever comes next in this Holy Spirit-fueled sequence, finds that the exact ingredients of his spiritual renewal, his enthusiasm, his assurance, his revved-upness, can just as easily be baked into a big old pile of satanic shit. No, that's not, that's not quite right. What's, what's actually terrifying to me is the possibility that the ingredients of anybody's spiritual renewal can get twisted into something ugly, something selfish, something bad for the world. And it doesn't take claws or the smell of sulfur to make it happen. Our own imaginations are enough to make it go. 
Someone said to me the other day, I've learned that I can tell everything I need to know about a person with one observation. When they get a little power, what do they do with it? Like, do some of y'all remember, as I do, when in elementary school the teacher would leave the classroom for a few minutes? I, I think in hindsight some of mine were going to have a well-deserved cigarette in the teacher's lounge. And they would appoint a student to take names if anybody acted up. <laughs> do you remember the students who took that responsibility way too seriously? Like, when they got a little power, what did they do with it? So here's Jesus, newly baptized, with the imprimatur of God's divine approval stamped indelibly on him. And oh, the places he could go. So much power, such possibility. What might he do with it? That, friends, is what we're in the desert to find out. Now, much has been made of differentiating the three tests as they are delineated here. The ancient Hellenistic philosophers warned against a threefold set of vices, love of pleasure, love of possessions, love of glory. And perhaps these three tests correspond to those in a very Jewish gospel-y kind of way. Making bread from a rock, love of pleasure. Inheriting all the empires of the earth, love of possessions. Summoning God's own angels to your aid, love of glory, fame, personal attention, the sin of narcissism, generally speaking. Or maybe we could contemporize the vice categories a bit. Turn this stone to bread, love of carbs, Steph. <laughs> Or maybe more generally, love of comfort. All the empires of the world can be yours. Love of control. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. A fantasy of rescue from all your worst mistakes. A love of lack of consequences. Love of comfort. Love of control. Love of lack of consequences. I can relate to all three of those on a pretty deep level. Anybody else? But I, I think the point in Luke's telling, or at least one way of reading Luke chapter 4, is that the tests Jesus faces are not meant to represent universal human temptations, but rather the specific risks that come with deep engagement with one's religious faith. I mean, Jesus' underwear is still damp with river water when he heads out to that desert, remember? Meaning, the baptized life is hardly an escape from all the ways that human beings can be self-involved or self-reliant or self-deceived. The baptized life is, in fact, the inauguration of a whole new set of challenges that are specific to life on God's path with regard to turning stones to bread. Well, I've not met anyone who felt seriously tempted to try that for themselves, but there is a strain of Christianity that promises material comfort, even prosperity, in proportion to faithfulness. Promises of health and wealth to those who pray diligently, attend worship dutifully, and, very important, 
Give generously. These are frequent pleas in some churches. Now, if you're here with Galileo Church, I feel like I can safely assume you are not down with the prosperity gospel per se. We rent a rattletrap barn for worship and sit on chairs that somebody else was going to throw out. And a lot of us feel at home here, honestly, because the decor sort of matches our own, shall we say, scruffy standard of living. But it's not unheard of that any of us, when our lives take a nasty swerve off road on a steep downhill run, when catastrophes pile one on top of another and there's no way out of the suffering except to go through it, might complain that we've done everything right. We've sacrificed, we've given, we've been faithful, even when it would have made sense to walk away. We even stuck with the church long past the point of the church's kindness to us. And now this, a diagnosis, a death, a disaster that takes from you far more than you knew you had, leaving you hollowed out, shell-shocked. How is that fair, we might say? Don't I deserve comfort? Where is my shalom? Wasn't my life supposed to get better, feel lighter with God on my side? I'm not demanding to prosper here. I'm just hoping to survive. And it would help if there were fewer rocks in my path and more bread, more of what I have to have to live. Now, on our best days, we know it's not like that that God is not a vending machine in the sky, the blessings coming down as the prayers go up. But when we are exhausted and starving and sunstroked at the end of our 40 days in that desert, it feels like maybe it should work that way. Or how about being offered all the kingdoms of the world to have authority? over the human population. We can hear this now with new ears, right? Our hearing sharpened by our awareness of how Christianity has been repeatedly co-opted for the colonizing projects of Western wealthy white empires. To imagine that Jesus himself rejected the offer of being the boss of all that, of owning it all, planting his flag on every continent. He said no in favor of trudging the dusty roads of ancient Palestine, hoping for someone to offer supper and a safe night's sleep as each day's sun went down, is to remember that he favored relationship over rulership. The organic sharing of God's beautiful dream between people who knew each other's names, shared each other's lives. Have any of you listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? The story of that Seattle megachurch where for a while, years actually, tens of thousands of people bought in to Pastor Mark Driscoll's insistence that their church, their church, was the truest, best expression of Christianity that without the ongoing and infinite expansion of their specific church, people worldwide would die, would die without knowing Jesus. And that his authority, the pastors, must be obeyed at every turn because he knew how to do it. He knew how to win the world for Christ. 
That church collapsed in 2016. Of course it did, but not before it did real damage to the people it seduced with that singular vision of expansion and control. Mars Hill was one mega version of something that Christianity is especially susceptible to, and progressive small churches are no less susceptible to. And that is the belief that we've got something no one else has, and no one understands the gospel as well as we do, and if people would just do it like we do, the world would be a better place. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, that when we are tempted to say that Galileo Church has solved all the problems of church and culture, and if people would just listen to us, then, well, let us not finish that sentence. It's a test, see, one that Jesus has already passed so that we can pass it too. To me, the third test in Luke's sequence, the diabolical double-dog dare for Jesus to jump from a high height so God can prove God's steadfast love, is one of the most insidious temptations of the baptized life. It is one, parenthetically, that Christians who claim not to need a vaccine against a deadly virus because they're inoculated with Jesus seem to have given themselves over to completely. But... For the rest of us. I don't think it's so much about literal rescue from physical harm. Instead, it's, it's something I call the, the ends justify the means contortion. It's the way we can be seduced by shortcuts, the way we legitimize little bits of bad behavior by telling us, ourselves that they're in service of something bigger that God really does want. A little lie here, a sharp jab at someone there, a careful disguise of my own complaints in the garb of some people are saying, pretending not to see a red flag, a, a warning sign of harm in the name of just keeping the peace, a flirtation with a coworker that you insist won't hurt your spouse because they'll never know, a teensy tiny theft because you'll use it better than they would have anyway. A play for sympathy to sort out the ones who really love you. <laughs> I could go on. If you have never played this game in your head of the ways that God would not mind you taking a wee shortcut through the forest of small unethical decisions for the sake of a sooner arrival somewhere you're sure God wants you to go, well, don't start now. That's not what we hope you'll learn at church tonight. I suppose what I hope we all learn or relearn at church tonight is that the baptized life is a tested life. And I know there are some theologies out there that would say that's because Satan is especially greedy to get religious devoted folks just for the fun of poking that diabolical finger in God's eye whenever one of us falls short. But that's not exactly how I would say it. I would say it like this. The baptized life is shorthand for the human being who is drenched 
in full awareness that they are God's person, living and breathing and moving in the cognizance that God is doing stuff in this world God still loves, and actively seeking every day as God's person to be part of that, whatever goodness God is creating. The baptized life is the life of wanting what God wants and dedicating oneself to getting God more of that and it's that close association of the baptized life with the life of God, me saying yes to God, God saying yes to me, that is vulnerable to a particular kind of confusion between what God wants and what I want. Because listen, there are a thousand million things that I want. And there are just as many ways to trick myself into thinking but if I want that, God must want that too. It happens in my politics. It happens with my money. It happens in my relationships, including my parenting. It happens with my work. It happens in the way I spend my time off from work. <laughs> I'm not even saying I do terrible, devilish, diabolical things, mostly. I'm just saying that it's easy to get it twisted, knowing that God loves me and is pleased with me and all that. It's dangerous, all that love and approval. Now, I'm going to say a thing that I say all the time. I say it so much that someday my tombstone will say, don't try to do this alone. On the surface, I know it looks like Jesus is out there in the desert facing down the Diabolos, the adversary, tested for his own sense of theological clarity all by himself. But maybe you won't be surprised to know that I find his community of faith to be quite present in this story in these two ways. One is... He responds to his tests with sound biblical theology, with quotations about the nature and character of God from Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, pieces of holy writ that he only had access to in community with his fellow believers. There was no Bible in his backpack, right? He read and sang and discussed and argued and memorized scripture in the synagogue on the regular with a minion, that is to say, a minimum required number of worshipers. It was the communal life of worship and the communal consideration of God's nature and character as revealed in scripture that prepared him well for the tricks he faced out there in the wilderness. And, two, we wouldn't even know about his 40 days out there and the tests he faced and the answers he gave except that he told his community about them. I mean, nobody else was out there, right? I can well imagine that he shared the experience as a kind of personal testimony, like, this can happen to any of us, he might say, who are on board with God's reign. 
talk together about how I got through it. Help each other think it through when you face your own tests. Don't keep it a secret how hard this is sometimes, how easy it would be to go your own way. No one has to go to the desert alone, he might have said. Not anymore. Just so, siblings, you beautiful baptized souls, your tests are our tests, just as they were Jesus's tests before they were ours. Let us prepare well and help each other and be ready. With God's help, we will. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.